Father, our greatest need is to hear the words of life. Thank you for the reminder of what is true and what is right because we live in a world of basically the opposite. Confusing messages, all kinds of opinions and ideas. And Father, you are the origin. You are the source of life. And I just pray that, Father, even now this morning, we would uh, find our life in you, to find our hope and significance in you. Father, may we glorify you, not only in our singing, but also in our listening. So prepare our hearts even now, Father. Give us minds and ears to receive and a heart that is willing to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, IBC family. We strongly believe that the Word of God transforms people's lives. God uses His Word to literally transform people for eternity. And so we believe very strongly in the Word of God. We believe very strongly that the Scriptures are not just another book, but God uses them in a divine way to transform us. And so we want the Bibles in people's hands. That being said, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, we'll be starting in verse 23 all the way through the end of the chapter. And as you're doing that, let me just kind of highlight where we have come from so far. You might recall from last week that Jesus literally just cleaned house in the temple and he, he declared it that my house is to be called a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. In other words, you just turn it into a place of commerce and self-serving gain. And this is not what my house is supposed to be about. And so we directed our time into prayer. And now the next day, Jesus literally comes back. He has the audacity to come back and say, hey, I know I caused quite a ruckus yesterday, and now I'm back to continue my ministry. And of course, the religious leaders at this time are, um, are definitely on edge. You know, that Jesus has gotten their attention. And so when Jesus comes back into the temple to teach and to heal, they start questioning things like, on what authority, on what basis do you have to do what you do? Uh, basically, they're challenging his authority. Like, uh, how, how are you able to uh, perform these miracles? On what basis do you say the things that you do? Who gives you this authority? Of course, when you think about the word authority, maybe the question we could ask is, what comes to your mind when, we, when I say that? What comes to your mind when we, when we think of authority or, or someone who is in charge? Say again? A policeman, yeah. The fact is, I mean, of course, in our day and age and today, right now in society, the word authority is probably kind of a four-letter word in some people's minds, right? The word authority does not, uh, have, you know, it kind of makes some people cringe. Some people, you know, accept it very readily and going, yeah, this is a normal part of life. This is what happens. This is how you have a civil society. This is the opposite of anarchy. And yet some people will hear authority and they just cringe because, well, they don't like to be told what to do. But the fact is, all civil societies are built around structures of authority. And he's always said, like, whether it be the police, a police department, or if the fireman, or, or even a mayor, or city council, or you could have parents over their children, you can have administrators and teachers over the students, you can have uh, politicians. I mean, there's all kinds of authority systems and a structure in order to promote or better pursue civil, civility with one another. 
It's a, it's a, a fact of life. And it, sometimes it trickles down to the most basic uh, kind of levels. And that's not to minimize what I'm about to say here, but I came across this kind of humorous story. I don't think it's real, but I liked it anyways. It was about a governor who was actually getting ready to eat his lunch at one of his campaign stops. Seems very appropriate for the time we're in right now. And he was really hungry, and finally the lunch came because it was delayed for some reason. And he comes to the line, and he has his plate, and the lady gives him a piece of chicken. And he's like, oh, can I please have another piece of chicken? And she's like, no, sorry, sir. It's just one chicken per person. He's like, well, please, ma'am. Like, I'm really hungry. I've been waiting for a very long time. She's like, sorry, sir. I'm sorry, it's one piece of chicken per person. And then he pulls the governor card. Ma'am, do you know who I am? I'm the governor of this state. And without much of a skip in, that, in her response, she says, Sir, do you know who I am? I'm the lady in charge of the chicken. <laughs> Move it along, mister. And so, point being said, <laughs> there's authority in every aspect, every sector of society. Authority is an essential part of life. There's, there is no authority because without it, there is chaos and division as a result. And we see in our passage this morning that, uh, that uh, the, the issue of authority is challenged by these religious leaders. Specifically, they want to know on what authority does Jesus teach and perform his miracles. Now, mind you, if you make, when you make observation of this text, they're not asking if Jesus has authority. You'll notice that Jesus, they're not asking, do you even have authority? No, they, they know he has authority. They cannot deny the miracles that, are, that he's performing right in front of them. And so they know he has authority. They just want to know the source of his authority. They want to know the origin of his authority. They want to know specifically, is this, is Jesus doing what he's doing? Is he teaching what he's teaching from God or from man? And of course, if you are a student of Scripture... If you have been familiarized with Scripture for some time, you will recall what Jesus says, for example, in Matthew 28, when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so the Bible teaches very clearly that, yes, Jesus has authority. He has been given to him by his, his Father in heaven. And so because all authority in, in God's creation has been given to Jesus, we see that it confronts, really, us with several things. Specifically, Jesus, because he has the authority, because he has all authority in heaven and on earth, confronts several aspects of sin and our flesh. The first one being, Jesus' authority confronts our unbelief and fear of man. Jesus' authority confronts our unbelief and the fear of man or the fear of people. Let's read in verse 23 through 27. When Jesus returned to the temple and began teaching, the leading priests and elders came up to him, and they demanded, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right? I'll tell you by what authority I do these things if you answer one question, Jesus replied. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven, or was it merely human? They talked it over among themselves. If we say it is from heaven, he will ask us why we didn't believe John. But if we say it was merely human, we'll be mobbed because people will people believe that John was a prophet. So they finally replied, we don't know. And Jesus responded, 
then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. We see in this uh, small or kind of short exchange with these religious leaders that Jesus exposes two aspects of a hardened heart. He exposes the, the heart of unbelief as well as the fear of man or the fear of people. And we see that the religious leaders, they were hardened by their unbelief. In other words, the reason why they are asking questions the way they are, and, and even specifically in the, way that, in the manner in which they're pursuing Jesus, isn't because they have a sincere desire for truth. They're, they're not approaching Jesus because they really want to know what is right or what is true. No, they're questioning his authority because they've already rejected the truth. They're coming to Jesus to find fault in his person or in his ministry. They're coming, to Je- they're coming to him with questions of malicious intent in order to find a justification or a reason to destroy him. There was no sincerity or genuineness in their search for truth. They already rejected it. Their hearts were already hardened. It's almost, without getting too prescriptive in this, it is a good reminder for you and me as we interact and engage people, right, on a spiritual level. When we talk about people are kind of asking questions of faith, I don't remember uh, Michel was when he, before he became a Christian, before God really captured his heart, he very much pursued people of the, of the faith, but he didn't pursue it necessarily with a, a, a sincere desire for truth. He pursued it to kind of dismantle arguments, to show how wrong other people were and how right he was. Not to put you on the spot, brother. But how often that is the case. People that do not have a sincere desire for truth, that are not genuinely seeking after God, the alternative is that they're actually asking questions ultimately to undermine what you believe, to make you look poorly, to, to uh, basically show how wrong you really are. And that was the case of these religious leaders. They did not ask Jesus questions out of sincerity, but because they had a hardened heart. They had already rejected the truth. But they were also motivated out of a fear of man. Jesus' authority confronts their fear of people. You see, these leaders, these leaders they, though they thought they were, they were in control of people, the irony or the kind of the, the weird sense, the twist in all this is that the, although they thought they had control over people, the people actually controlled them too. Because everything they did and everything they said, it was all with the kind of the motivation or the influences, what are they gonna, how are they going to respond? What are they going to think when I say this or do this? In other words, that's why they couldn't answer Jesus honestly. Because if they answered honestly, because they did reject John, and they didn't think that he was a prophet from God, they totally dismissed all that. But they can't technically say that because then they lose control of the people. They lose the influence that they have with the people. In other words, it's all about what do others think? Jesus even warns his disciples of this motivation, this, this fear of man, this fear of people in Matthew chapter 6. You might recall in Matthew 6, Jesus says in verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. You see, the religious leaders They prided themselves on looking religious, but they were not religious in his perfect sense. 
They wanted to look godly, but they were not actually godly. It's why John the Baptist calls them whitewashed tombs, because their righteousness was a facade. It was not real. They had the air, they had the appearance of it, but they were actually dead on the inside. They were not the real deal. My wife, Abby, likes to tease me often when we go to garage sales or yard sales and when she's like, what do you think about this? And usually in, in regards to furniture or whatever else or we'll go anywhere else, I do my initial test on whether something is the real deal or not. You know what I do? I do the knock test. I find out, is this the real deal or not? Is this solid? And she's like, is that solid? Is it solid? Is it real? Or is it just a fake version of the real? Is it just a veneer or is it something that is actually, oh, this is actually solid, this is hard wood. This is something that's going to last, in other words. This is not just a fake imitation, but it's real. You see, the religious leaders, they did not care. They were not consumed with, am I actually godly? Is my righteousness actually acceptable before God? No, they cared just about this. Do people think that I'm godly? And that is sufficient enough. As long as the people think, then we will have control. They will respect us. We will gain our temporary, temporary earthly reward. But it was never real in the first place. Let me ask you this, IBC family. Do the opinions of others influence you in any way? Are you constantly wondering what people think of you? Is your pursuit of Christ real, sincere, genuine? Do you really care about knowing what is true Or is your pursuit of Christ perhaps more on a self-serving train? Motivated by self-serving pursuits. Do you come to Jesus on His terms as the title of the sermon represents? Or do you come to Jesus with terms? Coming to Him with a certain list of expectations. fact is, if we come to Jesus on our terms, it is possible, it's very possible that you may not actually have a relationship with Jesus. If your only influence or relationship with God is built on, here's what I want God to do for me, it's possible that you may not actually be saved. And this brings us to our second point. The authority of Jesus confronts false conversion. Jesus' authority confronts false conversion. Read along with me in verse 28 through 32. Jesus responds, but what do you think about this? A man with two sons told the older boy, son, go out and work in the vineyard today. And the son answered, ah, no, I won't go. But later he changed his mind and he went anyway. Then the father told his son, you go. And he said, yes, sir, I will. But he didn't go. Which one of the two obeyed his father? They replied, the first. 
Jesus explained, then Jesus explained his meaning. I tell you the truth, corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you do. For John the Baptist came and showed you the right way to live, but you didn't believe him, while tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even when you saw this happening, you refused to believe him and repent of your sins. As kind of indicated from the point, Jesus is, uh, in this parable, Jesus exposes the false conversion of these religious leaders. He, votes, he, he exposes the false religiosity expressed by these religious leaders. In a sense, the religious leaders honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him, as Matthew 5, 15 says. They said yes to God with their words, but they said no to God in their lives. They said yes to God by, the way they, uh, by way of confession, but they said no to God because there was no repentance or surrender. The Bible calls this kind of faith a dead faith or dead orthodoxy. As James, might say, uh, James does say in James chapter 2, for example, he says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. I won't go into it on all the exhaustive detail of, of James's context there, but ultimately James's argument is this. You can show me your faith without works, but I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, my life, the way I conduct myself, how I go about living my life, shows that my faith is genuine. In other words, it's not merely just confession or profession but your life must also align with what you profess to be true. You see, their conversion, these religious leaders, their conversion was a conversion of confession, but not repentance. As we see in uh, James, excuse me, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. As we see in James chapter 2, verse 19, James says, you believe that God is one. You do well, even the demons believe and shudder. You see, true conversion, true conversion involves both confession of the truth, in other words, that Jesus is in fact the Son of God and He is our only Savior, as well as surrender and obedience. By the way, pay no mind to the verses right now. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I believe the words of J.C. Ryle kind of uh, uh, summarize this well when he says this, it is not our initial profession and response that matters, but whether we actually repent and obey. Thank you, Mary. It is not whether our initial profession and response that matters, but whether we actually repent and obey. You see, on the surface, the religious leaders looked what? Very religious. They looked godly. They had the appearance of godliness, but their hearts were dead. I think it begs the question as for cause of reflection Perhaps the question you can ask yourself is, does my, life, does my life match my profession of faith? 
Are the choices that I make in life and the way I go about living my life, does it align with what I profess to be true? Is, is my confession of faith evident by my surrender to Jesus Christ? I think it's important that we understand or take this in a very, and receive this in a very sobering way. We must understand that, we, that it is very easy to become disillusioned in thinking that I'm saved when it's possible that I've never been forgiven of my sins in the first place. You see, Satan comes as an angel of light, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And, as long as, and sometimes we can convince ourselves, and, and far be it from us, IBC and family, that we affirm others wrongly that we confirm for others inaccurately. That we, we, that we say, oh no, you're good. You prayed a prayer at camp. You're good. Maybe. Once again, what is genuine faith? Yes, it involves profession, of course. But genuine faith is revealed by your life. More specifically, it is revealed by your obedience to Jesus. Obviously, obedience to Jesus is not something we arrive or perfect in this life, but there ought to be a pattern. There ought to be a desire for obedience. And one of the, one of the um, motivations for honestly reflecting and grappling and doing real divine business work is what Jesus says in Matthew 16, verse 27. He says, The Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. In other words, if we don't take to heart what what Jesus is confronting the religious leaders with, it's very likely that we could be sitting here thinking that everything is all right when in fact it may not be. As Paul would say in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. This brings us to our third and final point in which Jesus' authority confirms judgment on those who reject him. Jesus' authority confirms judgment on those who reject him. Verses 33 to the end of the chapter. I know a long section, but let's just read. Let's understand this parable that Jesus really drives the point home with. He says, Now listen to another story. A certain landowner planted a vineyard, built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. And so the landowner sent a larger group of servants to collect for him, but the results were the same. Finally, finally the owner sent his son, thinking, surely they will respect my son, But when the tenant farmers saw his son coming, they said to one another, here comes the heir to their estate. Come on, let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. 
And so they grabbed him and dragged him out of the vineyard and murdered him. And when the owner of the vineyard returns, Jesus asks, what do you think he will, will do to those farmers? The, the religious leaders replied, he will put those wicked men to a horrible death and lease the vineyard to others who will give him his share of the crop after each harvest. And Jesus asked them, didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's wonderful to see. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and will be given to a nation that will produce proper fruit. Anyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone who falls on it. And when the leading priests and Pharisees heard this parable, they realized that he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. They wanted to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowds who considered Jesus to be a prophet. Upon further reflection of this parable, I could not help but to think about another encounter that took place long before this encounter, and that was, took place in 2 Samuel chapter 12. You see, in, this, in, this, in that context in 2 Samuel, we see that David had committed some horrible sins. He had an adulterous affair, and in order to cover it up, he eventually had to kill the husband of the woman he had an adulterous affair with. And then life goes on. You'd almost think that God just kind of dismissed it or overlooked it. Until one day, the prophet Nathan comes and shares a parable about a rich man who has many sheep and a poor man who only has one. And the rich man, not wanting to use his sheep, takes the poor man's only sheep, uses it for his own self-serving gain, and then basically David is filled with rage. He says, tell me who that man is. I'm going to tear him apart. I'm going to destroy him and take all that he has. And Nathan the prophet boldly points a finger at David and says, you are that man. You are that wicked man who took the, the one sheep from the poor man. In a very parallel sense, we see that Jesus shares this parable with the intent of pointing the finger, and he does. He says, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce fruit. Anyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone who falls on it. And of course, we see that the leading priests and the religious leaders, they realize, oh, Jesus is pointing the finger at us. We are those farmers. The landowner is, is God the Father. The servants represent the prophets. The landowner's son is Jesus. And the farmers, we are those farmers. We're those religious leaders. We're the ones who put these people to death. Now the contrast to what happened in 2 Samuel 12 and what happens here in Matthew 21 is that David repented. But the religious leaders continued to remain hardened in their heart. They did not repent. And what are the implications of unrepentance? What, are the, what, are, what, are the, what is the ripple effect? What are the implications of rejecting Jesus? We see the implication. We see the promise is that of judgment. Those who do not accept Jesus as their Savior will one day bow to Him as their judge and destroyer. 
We see in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, 16, verse 22, for example, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Or we see in John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever bears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This whole parable, we could, we could, we could unpack all kind of different nuances and aspects of it, but the, the whole thrust of the parable is this, that God is gracious to us. That God is graciously provided for his people. That God is patient even towards unbelief and rejection initially. That God loves his people so much that he would send his son. This is what we are to walk away from this parable. Look how long-suffering God is. Look how patient he is toward us. Look how much he loves us so much so that he will send his son. But we must also be forewarned that God will judge all unrighteousness through Jesus Christ. You see, you see Jesus' first coming, his first coming was a coming to save the world, but his second coming will be to judge it. That's what the Bible teaches. And you and I, we live in an age of grace right now. Not that God has ever been gracious in the past, but he has been gracious and long-suffering and patient towards his world because he loves his world. He loves people. We're created in the image of God. But one day, there will be a period to God's redemption. One day, people will stand before Him. We are promised in in Philippians chapter 2, right? One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, everyone, all of God's creation, will acknowledge Jesus as Lord and God and King. The question is, brothers and sisters, Have you done that today? Have you surrendered your life today? Are you certain and without any doubt that if Jesus were to come back today that you have no reason to fear? As I said, our enemy, he comes as an angel of light. And it comes, he, he subtly and in, 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 in an insidious sort of way just seeks to distract us just enough so that we don't take honest inventory of, am I really right with God? And how do I know? Will I stand before God innocent? Or will I stand before God unsaved? I think it's appropriate right now to just take some time and take some honest reflection of your own heart. This is going to be our prayer time, right? This is for you to spend necessary time with God. And I just want to encourage you. You may be going, Lord, I, I have no doubt whatsoever that I am a child of the king. But perhaps there are some areas or an area in my life that I've been hardened to, that I have not been submissive to. That even though I know Jesus is has all authority in heaven and on earth, I have not surrendered this, whatever this might be for you.
Let's take some time right now. Let's get right. Let's be free. After all, that is why Jesus came. It is to set us free.